0: What's up, you guys? I'm Haley. And I'm Andrea. And this is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. Episode I have like three small pieces of like business I want to cover. Get, non,
1: on. get to the business, yeah, yeah,
0: non related to this episode. Um, so first, I want to give a quick update in the Gabby Petito case since it's still ongoing. Um, Brian Laundrie is still missing, but this week we did learn Gabby's cause of death, so it was manual strangulation. And the coroner explained that this was do- done by hand, um, but other than that, the coroner didn't really release much from the autopsy. Um, but he did say that Gabby's body was outside for three to four weeks before she was found.
1: So that's like right after their little incident.
0: Yeah, that's literally like maybe
1: even you know that same week. Yeah, like that's that, so crazy.
0: It really helps clarify the timeline. I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I think this is what a lot of people expected,
1: but, you know, now we know for sure. Honestly, it surprised me. I was thinking more along the lines of, like, blunt force trauma or something like that, you know? See, that's what I thought at first when they first found her, but
0: then as soon as they immediately, you know, pretty quickly determined homicide, that's when I was like, mm, I feel like it has to be something that is clearly homicide- like and, stab wound or like gunshot. or Yeah, so
1: I don't yeah. know. But it's definitely interesting. It's definitely, like, they always say to strangle someone, you have to be like looking them in the face. It's like a true yeah. crime of passion. Like it takes a special kind of psychopath to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I hope they find this guy. I do too. Like sooner than later. Yeah, and he's still just a person
0: of interest in her death.
1: Which is bullshit. I know. I saw his little parents. Uh-huh. No. Yeah. I, I don't know. care. Like, he killed her.
0: Yeah. Like, I think everybody knows who that. Who
1: else? Who else? Unless there's some kind of crazy serial killer roaming around and he's just running for no good reason. Yeah. Anyway.
0: So those are the Sorry. updates. And no, it's fine. I, th- this was me yesterday. I like. <sighs> like rabbit hole tangent. Ah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so those are the updates in that case. And then the second thing is we've gotten a lot of case requests in, like, random places from DMs and comments on posts and stuff. So I just wanted to remind you guys that the easiest way to request a case is to email us. And our email is inhumanmonsterpod at gmail.com. And that'll be in our show notes so you can just, like, go and copy and paste it. But I just wanted to share that because I feel like we're getting a lot of random case requests in different places and it's hard to consolidate it all so if you email us we for sure will see it and be able to add it to like our list of cases yeah so yeah and finally um we reached 100 ratings on apple and just wanted to say thank you our goal was 50 by the end of the year so we've doubled that so thank you guys so much uh everyone that has rated and reviewed us on apple And if you're listening on Apple right now and you haven't, please, please do so because it just helps push our podcast out to more people. So thank you to everybody who has rated and who has like followed on other platforms and
1: just everybody that's listening. And it lets us know that we're doing a good job because we're human and we second guess ourselves all the time. So yeah, thank you. We really appreciate each and every one of you that has taken the time to do that.
0: Yeah, we really do. So yeah, that was just the the business I wanted to cover. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into today's episode? I don't think so. All right. So if you heard our first episode this week, um, which was a spooky episode that Andrea covered that was so good. But if you heard that one, then you already know what case I'll be covering today. And this is one that has stuck with me for years, as I'm sure it has for many, And at this point, it is still technically unsolved, um, but there has been very recent movement. And I mean, recent, recent, like last week recent. Yeah. So today we are covering the disappearance of Madeline McCann. Madeline Beth McCann was born on May 12th, 2003 to Jerry and Kate McCann. Kate McCann graduated with a medical degree from the University of Dundee in 1992 and became a general practitioner. Jerry McCann graduated with his medical degree from the University of Glasgow, I think is how you say it, Yeah. Um, in 2002, and he became a consultant cardiologist at the Glenfield Hospital in Leicestershire, England. And I looked up how to say Leicestershire, <laughs> So that's what Google said, so I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I think that's how you say it. Yeah, sounds good. The couple got married in 1998, five years after they met, and then they had their first child, Madeline, in 2003. And the family resides in Leicestershire, England, and had their second and third children, a twin boy and girl, in 2005. In May 2007, shortly before Madeline's fourth birthday, the McCann family went on vacation from their home in the UK to Praia de Luz in Portugal. The family was traveling with some of their friends who later became known as the Tapa Seven. And I'll explain why in a little bit, but I want to go through who was on the trip because some of the people become important later. So first, we have David Payne, who was pretty much the main organizer of the trip, and his wife, Fiona Payne. They're both doctors, and they had known the McCanns for years, and the couple were there with their two daughters, who were both under three years old. And then Fiona's mother was also with them, and she was staying in their apartment with them. Next, we have Russell O'Brien and his partner, Jane Tanner, with their two children, who were both also under three, and Russell was a doctor as well. And finally, we have Matthew and Rachel Oldfield, who were a doctor and a lawyer and had their 18-month-old daughter with them. So these families were there, along with the five members of the McCann family. So in all, there were nine adults and eight children. Wow. The couples were all staying at the Ocean Club Resort in Praia deluge, and this was a resort that attracted many vacationing families because it had both childcare services and activities for adults. Priya Deluge was also known as Little Britain because a lot of British vacationers would travel there, and the town also had some, you know, British locals living there, and it had a population of about one thousand people.
1: I can't imagine going on vacation and just letting some strange person watch my kids. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I know. I mean,
0: when I was a kid, I would like we would sometimes have a babysitter come to our room from the hotel and like oh. watch us for the night so i don't know i feel like i never went to any of the the kids clubs or anything but yeah. i definitely feel
1: like people do that i know maybe people not do so it. much anymore yeah i remember i was like at the cruise i went on once they had like a childcare thing and it was like overnight and stuff and i was thinking i was like oh por- but people do it i mean they definitely do yeah. it i was just like wow
0: yeah <laughs> yeah I don't think I can do it overnight. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) To each their own. Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah, exactly.
0: So the whole group were staying in the apartments at the resort that were called the Waterside Village, which were kind of at the perimeter of the Ocean Club Resort. The McCann's were in apartment 5A, which was a two-bedroom apartment at the end of the block. 5A was on the ground level, and it was located at the corner of two roads, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce the two roads because they are like complicated Portuguese, (laughs) but it was on the corner of two roads, and because of this, it was accessible from two different sides. The back patio of 5A overlooked the pool, tennis courts, and restaurant at the resort, but that back patio was also accessible from a public street. So there was, like, a little gate and some steps that led from the street to the balcony, and then the balcony had access to the inside of the apartment through a sliding glass door. Okay. And then the front of 5A was on the opposite side. So I know that this seems very detailed, but it is important. And it's just important. remember that the, the apartment was accessible from public streets. It was basically on, like, the end of the block of the resort. So as I mentioned, 5A was a two-bedroom apartment, so the kids all slept in one room, which had one bed where Madeline slept, and then an open space where they put the travel cots for the twins to sleep. The bed that Madeline slept in was next to the bedroom door, so if you were to open the door but not go into the bedroom, you wouldn't be able to see her bed from just opening up the door. And then there was a single bed that was basically across from Madeline's bed under the window, but no one was sleeping there. And then the window in the room is described to be about waist high, and it had curtains on the inside and then a metal shutter on the outside. The rest of the group were in other apartments next to the McCann's, so they were all at this resort, and every day the adults would drop the kids off at the kids' club in the morning while they went and did varying water sports and other activities. And they would pick the kids up for lunch and then do some family activities. And then they would return the kids to the daycare in the late afternoon. In the evening, they would pick them up, put their kids to bed, and then they would head to the tapas restaurant. And they did this every night, hence why they were called the Tapas 7. And I know I said nine adults
1: yeah i was wondering that
0: <laughs> yeah so it is kate and jerry mccann plus the tapas seven because this is something that the investigators named them as so in the investigation mm-hmm. they're look it's like to refer to this group of friends you know friends of the mccann's they called mm-hmm. them the tapas seven
1: interesting okay
0: so this tapas restaurant was visible from the mccann's apartment like back patio But I'll explain a little bit more about that visibility in a little bit. While at dinner, the adults would basically alternate getting up to go check on the kids every 20 or so minutes. And I just want to kind of like let you take that in. So they would leave their sleeping children who were all three or younger in their basically hotel rooms. They were apartments, but you know, basically a hotel room. And they would eat at a restaurant at the resort. Now, one couple, the Oldfields, did have a camera, like a monitor. They had an 18-month-old, and so maybe just because she was younger, they had this, like, high-tech camera. And so they were the only ones that could physically see and hear their babies at all times. The rest of them would basically rely on these checks that would happen, like, every 20 minutes or so to ensure that their kids were okay. And it also seemed like not every check was done fully on each kid. It seemed like for the most part, each check was done on that parent's children. And then they would kind of listen or briefly look in on the other kids. It doesn't seem like every single check was done on every single kid. Yeah. And so I I have a lot of like thoughts about this. I mean, obviously knowing what happens, I would never do this. I don't think I would ever leave my kids alone. First no. of all, but but as three or younger, what if they like wake up choking or something? Yeah, you wouldn't hear them
1: exactly exactly what I was thinking because I was like anything could happen, never mind the fact of what happens like, yeah, they could find a knife or you know yeah, choke on their spit or you know the younger one like the eighteen month old could like breathe into her own pillow and suffocate, you know, just crazy stuff right,
0: yeah. <laughs> There's so much that could happen aside from a robber or some other fears that you might have, but just like the kids physically, their physical health. Like, I just feel like anything could happen. Like if they wake up and you're not there, like that's terrifying. Yeah, exactly. So, but that's what they chose to do. And I just want to note, there was a nighttime babysitting service where you would take your kids to probably the daycare and they would watch them and then you could pick them up and bring them back to the room but Madeline's mom explained that they didn't want to disrupt the kids sleeping habits by having to pick them you know wake them up pick them up from the babysitting service and bring them back so they chose not to use that and that was their personal choice but I just cannot fathom that but you know to each their own that's the choice that they made and it is what it is. So the restaurant was 55 meters, which is 180 feet, straight shot from the apartment block. But that's straight shot. So to actually walk there through the resort, it was about 82 meters or 295 feet. And I'm really bad with like directions and lengths and stuff. So that's about three football fields length, almost three football fields length. So it wasn't just, you know if you're in the other room or right next yeah. door or on the patio outside but this is like you have to walk a, a decent distance to get back you can't just hop hop over
1: and if you did see someone coming in or out of I feel like you you wouldn't have enough time to get back yeah before they escape and you're clueless you know? Or if there was a fire that started, oh yeah, exactly. You know, it just yeah. Too many possibilities.
0: <laughs> yeah, but like I said, to each their own. So the top of the of apartment five A was visible from the Tapas restaurant, but the actual doors to five A could not be seen. So they couldn't see the actual doors. So all and I'll post some of. The photos of the apartment and the resort on our instagram so if you want to go check those out while you're listening to help visualize this then you can go look at those i had to do that when i first heard this story because it's hard to imagine so that will be on our instagram if you want to check that out all right so that's the basics of how this vacation was going So I'm now going to describe the day of May 3rd, 2007 from police statements from the McCanns and the Top of Seven and just what was being reported to the police. On the morning of May 3rd, the McCanns took Madeline and the twins to the daycare as they always did, dropping them off around 9.30 a.m. And then at 12.30, they picked them up for lunch, which they ate in their apartment. After lunch, they went to the resort's pool, and this is where the last photo of Madeline was taken. She was wearing a peach top white shorts and a sun hat and she was sitting with her dad and sister by the pool and kate was the one who took this photo at around 3 p.m they left the pool and took the kids back to the kids club and then around 5 p.m kate picked them up the kids nope i can't speak today kate picked (laughs) them up and brought them back to the apartment and this was while jerry was playing tennis. This pickup and bedtime was kind of a bit earlier than normal, but according to Kate and Jerry, the kids were extra tired that night. So they bathed them and then Jerry returned to playing tennis and Kate was with the kids. And the families actually had been planning to have a little group play date with the kids before they all went to bed, but because the McCann children were so tired kate decided to not take madeline and the twins to the play date and just kind of spend some time with them as they're winding down so around 7 or 7 15 kate put the kids to bed madeline was wearing a short sleeve pink and white eeyore pajama set Mm -hmm. and she had her comfort toy cuddle cat and a pink blanket with her
1: in her bed stop i know that is so sad I'm just visualizing it because I I know what she looks like, and she's such a cute little girl, and she's got these big old eyes, and her little Eeyore just says so heartbreaking. I know. I know. So after they put the kids to bed, Kate and
0: Jerry got ready for dinner, and they had a few drinks at the apartment before they headed to the tapas restaurant at around 8.30, 35 p.m., And it should be noted here that the patio doors of the apartment could only be locked from the inside, so the McCanns would often leave them closed but unlocked so that they could let themselves in on that side of the apartment, because that was the side of the apartment that was closer to the Tapas restaurant. So you're you're leaving the patio doors that are on the back patio that can be accessed from a public road. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, with your kids inside, no. yeah mm-hmm. that's that's bad that's bad parenting. Maybe all the other stuff is you know situational and you know whatever, but that's not good practice.
0: <laughs> no, why I would never leave my kids alone unlock in an unlocked house if I wasn't right outside. yeah Mm-mm. so anyway. And then also something to note, the restaurant's message book had a note that the same table at the tapas restaurant should be blocked off every night from 8.30 forward for these couples while their kids slept in the apartments. So it said in there that the kids were sleeping in the apartments while they were there. And anyone realistically could have seen this note. So this kind of just a lot of people speculate that somebody might have seen this and then took Mm. advantage of it.
1: What they should have done is they should have put all the kids in one apartment asleep and then partied in the apartment next door.
0: <laughs> yeah. Or had one person stay with the kids all night. Yeah, what about the grandmother? Like, Why alternate. the hell is she there
1: partying? Like, get her butt in there to watch the kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. Eat. Bring bring food back and eat at in the back patio. Yeah. Use the babysitting
1: service. Like so many options there were options there were so many options
0: so at 8 55 p.m matt oldfield was the first one to go check on the kids so he went to check on his baby in apartment 5b which was next door to the mccann's and on his way to his front door he said that he listened outside the window of 5a and did not hear anything so that was the check then jesus
1: (laughs) what was that you like jumped out of your skin. I saw that. Dang.
0: I'm pretty sure it was just Mackie. It's like oh, let God. me That's in. Scared the
1: shit out of me. It's
0: like yeah. banging he's on the like- door. <laughs> I might leave that in.
1: That was like
0: okay. It's like too much true crime to get to be scared. I know. You know. <laughs> You're like... Yeah. Okay. Whew. So. Matt Oldfield listened in the window of 5A, didn't hear anything. And then he also went and checked on the Paines, who were still in their apartment at the time. So he just went to check on them and say, hey, you coming to dinner? You know, we're all we're all there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then at 9.05 p.m., it was Jerry McCann's turn to check on the kids. So he entered 5A, stepped into the kids room and he saw the twins and Madeline all still asleep. And he explained later in an interview how that night when he checked, he kind of stopped and looked at Madeline and thought about how beautiful she looked, and then was looking at the twins and just thought about how lucky they were with her and the twins. And he said he doesn't know why he stopped and did that, but it was just something he remembered doing that wasn't normal necessarily. So
1: I've had moments like that before and then something bad happened later. Yeah. So I believe you, I guess. Trust your gut. Yeah.
0: (laughs) On Jerry's way back to the tapas restaurant, he ran into a British man named Jeremy Wilkins. And this was a guy that was staying at the resort, a British vacationer at the resort. And they had chatted before because, you know, they're all at the resort. And he was walking his child around the resort. And they stopped on the narrow sloping path that was between the restaurant and the apartment to chat. So the two talked for a few minutes and while this was happening, Jane Tanner decided that she was going to go check on the kids and she walked past Jerry and Jeremy and she recalls walking past them, but neither Jeremy nor Jerry recalled seeing her, which just is odd because the road was pretty narrow, like it wasn't a big road or anything. It was a pretty narrow area and again, I'll have a photo of that on Instagram, but it just seems odd that Jeremy and Jerry, neither of them, recalled seeing her. And Jeremy's like a third party; he's not even friends with them. He only knows them because they've all been staying at the same resort. So, just something to note.
1: And why would she be checking on them so quickly after he checked on them? Like, if it's twenty to thirty minutes, yeah, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's kind of
0: unless she felt the need to check on her kid. I don't know. Mm. So what I'll describe next is referred to in the investigation as the Tanner sighting. Jane Tanner said that while she was walking to check on the kids, um, I don't know if this is before or after she saw Jerry and Jeremy on the path, but at some point she saw a man carrying a child in the direction away from the bedroom window of apartment 5A. This was around 9.15 p.m. and she described the man as being 5'7 with dark hair and light skin. She said that he looked to be 35 to 40 years old and that he was wearing beige pants and a dark jacket. She also described that the girl that he was carrying looked to have been wearing light pink pajamas and with a floral pattern and cuffs on the legs. And this was similar to Madeline's pajamas but at at the time Jane Tanner didn't think much of it. You know, this is a family-friendly resort. There were many other families with their kids. So she checked on her kids and returned to the restaurant. Around 9.30 p.m., Kate McCann got up to go check on her kids. And at the same time, Matt Oldfield and Russell O'Brien got up to check on their own kids. Now remember, Russell O'Brien is Jane's partner. So it was kind of odd that he wanted to go check on the kids so soon after she wanted to check on them. But they did later tell police that their daughter was sick at the time. So, you know, they wanted to check more often. So that's why they were going. Yeah.
1: Or or how about just stay home if your kid's sick? It's not hard. Yeah. Sacrifice. Gosh.
0: Stressed out. So (laughs) I know. So Matt Oldfield offered to check on Maddie and the twins since I guess he was going to go anyway. So Kate agreed and the two men left to go check. This time, Matt Oldfield entered apartment 5A through the unlocked back sliding door and he stood at the doorway to the bedroom. And he said he saw the twins sleeping, but he did not enter the room to visibly see Madeline. But he said he didn't hear anything, so he assumed everything was fine. All right, now I'm going to describe another sighting of a man that night but this actually wasn't reported until may 26th about three weeks after madeline disappeared this is called the smith sighting because it is from martin and mary smith who were other vacationers at the ocean club the smiths were from ireland and they were on vacation at praia praia deluge And at the same time, and around 10 p.m., they were walking around and they saw a man about 500 yards away from apartment A walking away from the Ocean Club Resort towards the beach. They described him as being somewhere between 5'7 and 5'9 with a slim to normal build and short brown hair. They said that he was carrying a child and they noted that he looked uncomfortable carrying the child. Mm. The child looked to be three to four years old, a girl wearing light-colored pajamas and bare feet. They said that she had blonde hair and pale skin, but again, at the time, they didn't think anything of it because family-friendly resort, even even if he looked uncomfortable, that was just their opinion, and also if she was, like, asleep, dead weight or something, it could be heavy. You know, like, they didn't really think anything of it. But after Madeline was reported missing and they started seeing media reports about her, they remembered this sighting and they did report it to the police. So back to the group, at 10 p.m., Kate McCann got up to go do her check on the kids. When she got to her apartment and got to the bedroom, she noticed that the door was open a bit more than how the uh, her and Jerry had left it. They always left it almost all the way closed, but it was left kind of open. But she just figured that maybe Matt, who was the last one to check, had left it open more after checking. When Kate went to close the door some more, it basically slammed shut because of what she assumed was a draft. And when she opened it again, she noticed that Madeline was not in her bed. So Kate saw Madeline's cuddle cat and pink blanket laying on the bed, but no Madeline. So she instantly checked in the master bedroom and the rest of the apartment to see if maybe Madeline had wandered out of her bedroom, but she couldn't find her, so she ran back into the kids' room, and that's when she noticed that the curtains were flying a bit and the window was fully open. She also noticed that the shutters from the outside had been raised up all the way, and this wasn't normal. They wouldn't leave the window open. So she immediately thought someone took Madeline.
1: So... They wouldn't leave the window open, but they would leave the door open. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, just I'm just clarifying, you yeah. know. Well, the door was closed. It was, but it just wasn't locked. But it was closed. But so the window was unlocked was as well and closed. Okay. Yeah. All right.
0: Yep. So Kate ran back to the restaurant, leaving the twins back in the apartment, which a lot of people criticized, saying, "If you had this yeah. reaction of somebody took Madeline, why would you leave your babies in the apartment?" But I will say, you never know what you would do, and it might have just been an instinct, like, I need to go get my husband. So, I don't want to judge that too much.
1: Okay.
0: So, she ran back, got her husband and their friends, telling them what happened, and apparently she was screaming something like, they've taken her, or something like that. So, she immediately thought that madeline was abducted she wasn't thinking maybe madeline got up and walked up walked off on her own like yeah. she was thinking she was abducted from the start
1: that'd probably be my first thought too i don't know you think yeah because i just i don't know i know how people are sick and i would just think yeah that.
0: <laughs> that's true so the group immediately started looking and at 10 30 the resort activated its missing child search protocol at this point many pretty much assumed that Madeline had walked off so over 60 staff and guests started searching the resort for her but obviously no sign of Madeline was found that night. So the investigation began and from the start there were a lot of doubts that the McCann's and the Top of Seven were telling the full truth. The Guarda Nacional Republicana or the GNR arrived at the ocean club around 11:10 PM that night. And the GNR is actually subject to military law and organization, and they are described as being responsible for preventative police and highway patrol in 94% of Portuguese territory. They also work in coastal control, nature protection, and search and rescue operations. So this was basically like the first level of police that were called. So they searched the property when they arrived, but after searching and finding nothing, they alerted the criminal police, which are called the police judiciaria or the PJ. The PJ arrived sometime between midnight and 1 a.m. There's varying reports, but at 2 a.m., two patrol police dogs were brought to the resort. And then at 8 a.m. the next morning, four more, more search and rescue dogs were brought in. But after finding nothing at the resort, the police began to search in the surrounding areas, including the waterways, wells, caves, sewers, just, you know, looking everywhere they could. Despite this search effort, it is said by many that the initial response and search was lacking with many mistakes being made. For example, neither the border nor the Marine police were contacted right away. So that could have allowed for someone to possibly escape across borders with Madeline, especially in Europe. I feel like the borders are so close. You know, it's hard to, you know, in the States, some of the States, it like can be a long way to get out of the state. But in Europe, it just feels like everything's so close. So that definitely was a not good. They also did not begin house to house searches or put any roadblocks in place until late the next morning. It also took Interpol five days to issue a global missing person alert, which many think is way too long.
1: Yeah, for a child, I would think that's kind of long to wait.
0: As- again, especially in Europe, you know, going between states and the United States is one thing. But there's still a federal, yeah. the FBI, like, oversees all the states. Whereas in Europe, you're going to a totally different country. No, like
1: countrywide or not country like continent wide jurisdiction. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: And like there's the EU, but it's it's different. It's not yeah. quite the same. So yeah, I definitely think the the Interpol alert should have gone out yeah. sooner. So they also did not secure the crime scene. So tons of people were entering and leaving apartment 5A before they ever took DNA samples. And on that note, 5A was only empty for one month after Madeline disappeared and no real investigation of the apartment or bedroom was really done. And there were actually two families that stayed in 5A after this incident before it was officially sealed off in August 2007 for forensic tests.
1: That's too late. There's no point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, there probably is significant i would think significant um like dna fingerprints on the window if that is the point of entrance that yeah. that probably the other families weren't you know touching the the windowsill right. but still like that's too long
0: yep agreed
1: So as far as the investigation, the Portuguese police
0: are running it. And the British police were doing some here and there, but technically this was, you know, happened in Portugal. So the Portuguese police were were running it. Mm -hmm. So this is where Goncalo Amaral comes in. And if you've heard anything about this case, you've probably heard about Goncalo Amaral. Mm -hmm. Andrea's making a face right now (laughs) because, yep. So he was the head of the PJ in Portimao, I think is how you say it, but that could be wrong. Um, But that was a nearby town and he became the lead investigator in this case. The PJ named their first suspect just 12 days after Madeline disappeared. And in Portuguese, suspect is Arguido. And that's how it's referred to throughout the media and like around the world. So that's how I'll refer to them. So the first Arguido was a man named Robert Murat. And Murat was originally from Hammersmith, West London, but he was recently living in his mother's house in Praia Deluge. And this house was located about 150 yards from apartment 5A. When the case broke, Murat offered to help the PJ as an interpreter since he spoke both English and Portuguese, And he later reported that he wanted to help because he had a daughter back in England that was around the same age as Madeline. So he was wanting to help out with the investigation to help find her. So he was helping police, but a journalist from the Sunday Mirror, which is a British newspaper, reported to police that Murat had been acting odd surrounding the case. Mm. And I found differing reports of exactly what was said. And I'm not 100% sure that this was the only thing that led them to name him as a suspect, but it definitely, to me, doesn't seem like they had a ton of evidence right off the bat to, like, name him, right. but there might have been something I'm missing there. But with that, the PJ named him and Arguido. Murat claimed that he was home with his mother the entire evening of May 3rd, but three of the McCann's friend group, along with a resort nanny and two other British vacationers, all said that they had seen him around apartment 5A shortly after Madeline disappeared. His house was also in the direction that Jane Tanner had reported seeing the man carrying a child walking in, so many became suspicious of him. Police searched his home, including draining his pool and searching his garden using ground radar and search dogs. They also searched his cars, computers, phones, and questioned two of his associates, and he quickly became widely known as a suspect. In March 2008, one of his associates even had their car set on fire, and the word FALA, which means speak in English, was sprayed onto the pavement in front of it, so... You know, people really thought that he was the one that did something. Wow. However, police could find nothing, and I mean nothing, to link Murat to Madeline's disappearance. So on July 21st, 2008, Murat's Marat, arguido status was lifted, and he actually ended up receiving £600,000 for a libel libel lawsuit. Is that how you say it? Liable?
1: Liable? Like they're Liable.
0: No, it's like libel, like uh,
1: slander and libel. No idea. No, it's not libel. It's definitely not libel. I think it's libel. I'm not familiar with that word. That must have, I must have skipped school that day when they taught that.
0: (laughs) Well, it's like a law word. And I know I learned it in my like business law class, but that was also years ago. And when I was studying abroad in Italy, so like I definitely (laughs) didn't learn anything. So,
1: you know. (laughs)
0: I think it's liable. Okay, but either way, a lawsuit. He won. It's basically when people say things about you that aren't true,
1: right? Like slander.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So he was no longer a suspect. Um, now I'm gonna talk. We're gonna go like back in time a little bit, and this is gonna be talking about when Kate and Jerry McCann became Arguidos. So there was a lot of speculation that developed due to the media coverage, things being reported about the McCanns, and I'm going to mention some of that, like, speculation here, but please know that this was never actually proven. So the main one was the theory that the McCanns had been sedating their children to get them to sleep while they were out at dinner. (laughs) People believed that they had accidentally given Madeline too much and she passed away and they were trying to cover it up. Sedating
1: them with what?
0: I don't know, just like a sleeping medication or even Benadryl or something. Oh, yeah. Just to get them to sleep. Yeah. And with this theory, a lot of people believe that the statements from the top of seven were fabricated, some even believing that Jane Tanner's sighting was completely made up. There were also some red flags and inconsistencies in the McCann statements. When Jerry first spoke to the PJ, he claimed that he had entered through the locked front door during his check. But then in a second interview he did six days later, he claimed that he entered through the unlocked back patio door. And, you know, they expect some inconsistencies between statements, especially in such such a high stress time. But that is such a
1: big one, I feel like. To not remember what door you went into. Unless he was, like, wasted or something, like, you should be able to remember what door you went in. that's my thought, too. Yeah.
0: The next issue was about the metal shutter that was on the outside of the bedroom window. Kate claimed that the window and shutter were both closed when they put the kids to bed, but they were both open when she discovered Madeline missing jerry said that after they discovered madeline missing he went to look at the shutter and he said that he discovered it could only be raised up from the outside not the inside but the pj claimed that it could only be raised from the inside and said that if you were to raise it from the outside you had to use force and there was no sign of forced entry
1: Hmm.
0: so just some inconsistencies that made people suspicious right in July 2007, two British search dogs went to apartment 5A. Keela was a CSI dog trained to alert to human blood and or human blood scent, and Eddie was a cadaver dog trained to alert to the scent of human remains. So they searched the apartment. They also searched a nearby wasteland and the beach, but that only or er, I cannot speak. <laughs> they only alerted in the apartment
1: both of them
0: both both yeah okay so both dogs alerted behind the sofa in the living room and eddie the cadaver dog alerted near the wardrobe in the main bedroom Oh. so after these alerts the pj sealed off and searched the apartment on august 2nd so before this not only had people gone in and out you know, right after Madeline disappeared, but people had actually stayed there. Other families had actually stayed there. Wow. So when they sealed it off again, they searched it, and the dogs actually returned, and the only alert came from Eddie in the second search. Eddie was the cadaver dog, and he alerted to Cuddle Cat, who was laying in the living room. No. He also alerted to a box of clothes that was taken that belonged to the McCann's, so people were speculating that, you know, the, there was something on the clothes. And I didn't write this down, but I did hear in a couple of places that somebody close to the McCann's attorney or something said that they're saying that maybe the the uh, human remains sent on Kate's clothing could be because she's a doctor. But she's a general practitioner. She's not like a, even a surgeon.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: So, Yeah. <laughs>
1: reaching there a little
0: yeah the McCann's um, who were staying in Portugal during all of this ended up renting a car three weeks after Madeline disappeared on August 6th Keela and Eddie were both taken to search among 10 different cars which included both the McCann's rental car and Robert Murat's car because at this time Murat was still a suspect so in this search Eddie the cadaver dog alerted to the McCann's car outside of the driver's side door And then Keila alerted to the trunk of the car on the passenger side. And then also alerted to the little map compartment in the driver's door. And there was a key ring in there. So they took the key ring out and put it somewhere else. And she also alerted to the key ring when it was placed elsewhere.
1: But they didn't rent this car until three weeks after she went missing? Correct. Hmm. Either there's a lot of killing going on in Portugal or... Yeah, that's interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. So all of the inconsistencies in the statements and then these findings from the canine searches led the PJ to believe that Madeline was not abducted. So they now believe that she had died inside of 5A, possibly due to an accident. So on September seventh, two 2007, the McCanns were officially given Arguido status. Wow. A British crime lab called the Forensic Science Service in Birmingham received the DNA samples from where the dogs had alerted. The sample from the car truck came back as matching 15 of 19 of Madeline's DNA components, but they said that this result was basically too complex to say definitively that it was a match. And they also said that the sample had at least three contributors that could have given made it a match. So they basically said, like, this could be a match or it just could be a chance match. Like, it's it's not definitive at all.
1: Wow.
0: And remember, like you just said, this vehicle was not rented until three weeks after Madeline disappeared. Over three weeks after she disappeared. So if the dogs were correct to alerting to human remains and or blood, and if that was related to the McCann's, it would mean that they some point moved madeline's body yeah so it just leads to a lot of questions definitely suspicious but yeah
1: circumstantial though yeah
0: yes after this there were leaks about all of this in the media that came directly from the portuguese police indicating that Uh. the mccanns had transported madeline's body in the car this was never actually confirmed by the lab that conducted the test though Two days after being named Arguidos, the McCanns returned to England. When they got off the plane, they were carrying the twins, and they said to all the reporters that were there, quote, whilst it is heartbreaking to return to the UK without Madeline, it does not mean we are giving up our search. As parents, we cannot give up on our daughter until we know what has happened. So their return was broadcasted across Probably across the world, honestly. And Jerry got off the plane carrying his son in his arms. And when Martin Smith saw this on TV, it sparked something in his memory. So if you remember, Martin and Mary Smith saw a man carrying a child toward the beach at 10 p.m. And when Martin saw Jerry McCann carrying his son, he was like, that's the same man I saw carrying a child that night. So he actually went and reported this to the Leicestershire police, but it was later debunked because multiple witnesses placed Jerry McCann at the tapas restaurant at 10 p.m. So unfortunately, that didn't confirm anything. Okay, and this is uh, one thing that's related to the drug slash sedative theory, and I'm not really sure where to add this in, so I'm just going to add it in here because it kind of makes sense with the timeline. On September 24th, 2007, after the McCanns were named suspects, a British security company in the UK called Control Risks actually took samples of the twins' hair to test for any drugs. And this was actually upon the family's request because Kate mentioned that she was concerned that the abductors may have given them sedatives. And she especially thought this because the twins slept through all of the commotion in the apartment after Madeline disappeared. So they took these samples, and the test, test came back with no trace of drugs. But remember, this was over four months after Madeline disappeared. And it has been reported that hair testing can be really far out. Yeah. But there's never been, or I couldn't find anything proven that it for sure would show up this far out.
1: And I was going to say, not I don't think all drugs will show up in your hair. Exactly. So if it was like Benadryl or... What other sedatives I don't even know that you would give a kid, like, safely, quote-unquote. <laughs> right. Um, but I was wondering that, too, because, like, if if I was to wake Manny up in the middle of the night, he would be, like, alert. He would be cr- probably crying, especially if it was a stranger taking him off somewhere. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't just be laid out. Like, it's weird that the people that saw the child with this person, the suspect, this man... Like, they didn't notice that she was awake or crying or
0: yeah. anything. So I think that's why some people think that she was maybe drugged. Yeah, that makes the most sense. On July 21st, 2008, the same day that Robert Marat's arguido status was lifted, the Portuguese attorney general announced that there was no evidence to link the McCann's to Madeline's disappearance, and their arguido status was officially lifted. A few days later, the case files about Madeline's disappearance were released. The prosecutor's report was concluded with quote, No element of proof whatsoever was found, which allows us to form any lucid, sensible, serious, and honest conclusion about the circumstances. So they're basically saying we have no clue what happened, but we have no <laughs> evidence to link the McCanns, so they're not suspects. Or anyone anymore. else? <laughs> yeah. So going back just a little bit to before this, in October 2007, Goncalo Amaral, our wonderful friend, he was the lead investigator, and he was doing some sketchy shit, and that's honestly the best way to describe it. He had told a newspaper that the British police were only following leads that helped the McCanns, and he just was not acting like a lead investigator should. Now, one day after Madeline disappeared... Amaral was actually named an Arguido in another disappearance of a young girl in Portugal. Wow. So yeah, the investigator into the disappearance of Madeline was named a suspect in another disappearance. So this was a girl named Joanna Cipriano, and she disappeared in 2004 from a town that was seven miles away from Praia de Luz. Her mother and her uncle actually confessed, and they were convicted of murder, But her mother retracted her confession and said that she had been beaten by police.
1: To confess? Yeah. Wow.
0: Goncalo Amaral was not present during the mother's interrogation, but he was accused of covering up for others. The month after Madeline's disappearance, Amaral was charged with making a false statement. And then later in May 2009, he was convicted of perjury and received an 18-month suspended sentence. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. Wow. So because of all of this, in October 2007, he was removed from his post as lead investigator on Madeline's disappearance. He was transferred to the PJ in a different town. And he actually ended up resigning in June 2008 altogether. And he wrote a book wrote and published a book called Maddie, The Truth of the Lie. So in this book, he alleged that Madeline had died in the apartment and that the McCanns had faked an abduction to cover it up. By November 2008, it had sold 180,000 copies, and then a documentary based on his book was broadcast in Portugal in April 2009. (laughs) So the McCanns sought legal action against Amaral and his publisher, against both him and his publisher. And they were actually awarded £600,000 in 2015. However, in 2016, Amaral appealed and the appeal was granted. And then the McCann's appealed this decision to the Portugal Supreme Court, but the court ruled against them in February 2017. And then their final appeal was rejected in March 2017. Dang. And this was all after they were officially, like, their arguido status was taken away. Right. So that's what happened with Goncalo Amaral. Um, so with him being transferred in October 2007, the dep- deputy national director of the PJ, Paulo Reb- Rebel, that's probably not how you say it, <laughs> but Rebel. whatever, <laughs> Rebel, um, he became the new lead investigator. So not long after, the top of Seven were interviewed once again by the Leicestershire police in England and the PJ was in attendance. But the PJ just seemed to be a bit of a mess during this time. They were investigating several charges against the McCanns, and they also had issues where like transcripts of interviews they did were leaked. The national director of the PJ ended up stepping down, citing media pressure. They were just a mess. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. And then, as I mentioned a little bit ago in July 2008, the v- investigation into the McCanns and Madeline's disappearance was closed. So after they were taken off of Arguido status in 2008, the McCanns returned their focus to finding out what happened to Madeline. The family had set up Madeline's fund in 2007, and in the year after Madeline disappeared, the fund received almost two million pounds in donations. The fund hired several private investigation firms, but nothing really ever came from most of those. In 2008, the fund hired Oakley International, which was a Washington, D.C. registered detective agency. This operation was led by Henry Exton, who was a former British police officer with MI5. The team on this operation went to Portugal to investigate, and they were particularly focusing on the Smith sighting. In the conclusion of their investigation, Exton suggested that they release the efits, which are basically the electronic images that were created of the man that the Smith saw. So he suggested they release the efits to the police. However, the Madeline Fund decided these should remain confidential. The fund did pass the EFITs to both the PJ and the Leicestershire Police in October 2009, but otherwise did not release them. So up until this point, a full-on British investigation into Madeline's Madeline's disappearance hadn't happened. It had pretty much all been done by the PJ in Portugal and then some investigation by PIs. In 2009, the British Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, met with the McCanns on their request of a review of the case. Jim Gamble, who at the time was the head of the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Center in England, created a report for the Home Secretary, Alan Johnson, on the current status of the investigation in England. So Gamble's report discovered that nine different British agencies had been involved at some point in some way in the search for Madeleine, but that there was an extreme lack of coordination between them. He recommended a renewed cooperation be developed between the British and the Portuguese so that they could properly exchange information and work together to find Madeline. In 2011, this led to the Scotland Yard to open an investigation. Now, the Scotland Yard is the head of the Metropolitan Police Metropolitan Police in London, who are responsible for policing the 32 boroughs of the city. So under the new Home Secretary in England, Theresa May, the Scotland Yard launched their investigative review into Madeline's disappearance and the investigation into it by the British. So they're basically looking into like what the British did and then trying to work with the Portuguese police to to turn this into a proper investigation right so this was called Operation Grange I think and it was a team of 29 detectives and eight civilians so at this point it had been about four years since Madeline disappeared and the hope was that the Scotland Yard inquiry would bring more coordination and renewed efforts to find Madeline but to hear about that you will have to tune in to part two. (laughs) <laughs> i didn't tell you i was gonna do a part two <laughs> because i wanted you to be surprise! surprised like our listeners
1: surprise.
0: <laughs> yeah so i wasn't gonna make this two parts but while i was doing my research i just realized how much there is and i really wanted to include all of the details and it's also like there's so much that has happened that i wanted to include it all right So part two will come out on Monday and that will cover the Scotland Yards investigation and some really interesting stuff came out of that. And then it'll all lead up to things we've learned in the last two years and last week. Right. Okay. So that is the first part of the case of Madeline McCann. I know it was a lot, but I hope that I was able to walk through it in a clear way, hopefully. Yeah, you did really good. Awesome. If you guys want to see photos and stuff like that, that will all be on our Instagram at Inhuman underscore podcast. And I'll also post it on our Facebook page, which is Inhuman, a true crime podcast. So you can go on there and see it and comment on it and stuff. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you guys are enjoying our podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple. It means the world. And do you have anything else to say? Uh, no. think so all right well thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you on monday with part two of the disappearance of madeline mccann and until then keep it human bye bye